Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., a podcast that goes out from Firms Consulting every Monday morning, where we distill the insights from the noise. As you know, this is a very popular podcast, which we make available for our insiders and slides members, but we also decided to make it available to all listeners. If you want to receive these updates every Monday, there are three ways to do so. First, you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. And if you put in your email address, you will receive these updates every Monday morning for future episodes to come. If you go to any podcast app and you type in strategy skills, you'll be able to see this episode and previous episodes. And of course, many of you found this so useful that you asked us to put out a print version of this. We've obliged and put out a Kindle version, which you can find on Amazon under Strategy Insights. And that contains all of the previous episodes, all of those insights edited and put into a bite-sized format that's very easy to use. As we go through today's episode and future episodes, I want you to really think about what you're going to do with the information and insights you're receiving. And not just what you will do, whomever you may be, but what would a leader do? Would a leader simply take the insights and improve some analysis they're doing? Or is it the prerogative of a leader to act on the insights and influence members of their organization to respond differently? Are you just going to improve the analysis or are you going to do something with it? Always think about that difference between just being the best analyst and being a leader. Leaders act. The first big topic we're reading in the press is outsourcing. COVID has actually made outsourcing an even bigger topic than it was. Because if we live in an age when we've realized that many things don't have to be on site, can you imagine how many things that companies previously thought could not be outsourced could now be outsourced? So cost cutting and outsourcing is now in overdrive. It's become a strategic imperative for most companies. And when we talk about outsourcing, there's always a strong sentiment of patriotism. Why outsource the country X or Y when we can bring that capability, whether it's manufacturing and so on, into the domestic market and create jobs here? But it's not a question of patriotism. It's really a function of costs. If something has been outsourced to a low-cost location and is now brought back to a high-cost location, either the company has to bear the costs or it has to be passed on to consumers. So it's a question of cost, but it's also a question of strategic intent. Why do something when you can outsource it to someone who may be able to do it better, thereby freeing up your capital and your management time to focus on things you are actually good at? Now, I'm going to tell you a story based on my past to understand the strategic insights around outsourcing that I think many people may be missing when you read the big theme of outsourcing. Many years ago, I interned at a diversified oil and gas giant. And um, I was very close to the two senior scientists. I worked in their lab and I was helping them put together a business case to develop an oil and gas field. And it was one of the largest oil and gas fields at that time. But in the country where I was located, it wasn't a field that would have been easy to develop for two reasons. One, the capital expenditures would have been enormous. It would have just been something the company could not afford to do by themselves. Two, the technology that would be needed to make the field economical was not yet there. It would take some time with R&D and so on. And three, um, the transportation lines to connect the field to the export market was not there. 
So there was a lot of discussions. I was um, helping to do the business case. And at the end of the, the, the discussions, the company realized that they could not develop that field by themselves. But there were other players who had the financial muscle to do it, but the company wasn't keen to partner with them. They didn't want to get involved because they felt the risk was too high. There was just too many things that needed to occur for this field to be economically viable. So they didn't want to be involved in the project directly, but they wanted to benefit somehow if the project was developed. And the discussion came down to this. That company where I worked had developed a unique technology to extract the oil and gas. It was leading technology at that time. And anyone who wanted to develop this field would need to use that technology and build on it. The discussion came down to this. Let's license this technology to another competitor, a giant. They have a far bigger balance sheet and they have the financial muscle to see this through. And the discussion went something like this. On one side were the scientists who said, don't license it out because these guys are going to take that technology. They're going to reverse engineer it. We're basically giving them a way to enter this market. On the other side, there were scientists saying, no, these guys are never going to reverse engineer. This country is... You know, they actually used the word backward when they described it. They don't have the capability to master advanced industrial manufacturing on a scale that is needed and also to do the kind of R&D research to take that licensed technology to the next level. Now, the irony was lost on the scientists that they were what many people would consider to be a poorly developed emerging economy. They had found a way to take technology that they had licensed 60 years ago and did something with it. But yeah, they were having the same debate about another country that they felt couldn't master the technology. The long and short of it is that they felt the country that they were going to license the technology to wouldn't have the capabilities to master it. And they licensed the technology. That country is called China. And the rest is history. Because I looked up the company recently and they've been completely shut out of some markets because the Chinese not only reversed the technology, they improved on it. So they're not infringing on any, pat on any patents. They simply found better ways to do what the original licensed technology was meant to do. And this is the thing you have to understand when it comes to outsourcing. It's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, many times you have to outsource certain capabilities because you have no choice. Maybe you're locked out of the market so that the only way to enter the market is not directly, but to license your technology. Other times you need the money, so you license out your technology and patents. Other times you just don't want to do something. You don't want to do the work of making an investment. So you give, it to, you give your technology to someone else who wants to carry all of that risk. But this is an important thing to remember. Every single time you do that, every single time you do that, you just, if you're an executive who agrees to outsource anything, you should take a little timer, put it on your desk and set it to five years. Because that's roughly how long it's going to take for the entity to which you have licensed your technology, outsourced your capability to figure it out. Now, I have an executive coaching client who runs a fairly prominent outsourcing company in Asia. And we had a lot of discussions about where he wants to take that business. And one of the discussions we had is how he feels about running a business that operates completely in the background. No one knows what they're doing. It's bad for their morale. They want to be more like the Taiwanese and move up the value chain and have their own branded products. And he felt really bad about it. And I said, look, you're thinking about this all wrong. What you got to remember here is that you have a gift. Somewhere in the United States, Europe, or wherever it is, there are companies that are going to come to you. 
And this is what they're basically doing when they use you as the outsourced manufacturer. They're basically telling you, look, we're going to do all the R&D to figure out how to make this product. We're going to give you our blueprints. We're going to give you our designs. We, on top of that, are going to give you a large order. We're going to then help you set up your manufacturing center. We're going to then help you recruit people and train them to make our products. And if you do a good enough job, we're going to pay you a bonus and we're going to give you even more work. So what I was trying to get this client to understand is that he's looking at it all wrong. He needs to remember that as an outsourced partner, he is simply at the first step of figuring out how to do it himself. Every single time something is outsourced to someone like him, it's a gift. You don't have to do the R&D. The R&D has been done for you. You're just being paid to figure out how to do it. Now, of course, you can't reverse engineer it and copy it. That's infringing on patents and all kinds of World Trade Organization rules. But if you make it better, change the underlying operating process so that it's a unique innovation, that you can patent. But it's a lot harder to do that when you're starting from scratch versus starting from the point of being the outsourced partner. And that's a deep insight here. One, if you are outsourcing anything, please put a timer on your desk. And two, if you're the person who's receiving the outsourced work, you should thank yourself because someone else has taken the, on the enormous burden of doing the R&D and passing it on to you. The other big, big topic we're seeing, and it's playing out in multiple formats, is this general theme around the world that if a company finds ways to lower the cost to consumers, let's celebrate them because they're opening up markets and doing all kinds of wonderful things for capitalism and commerce. In fact, in the tech space, the entire argument that's on one side to protect tech companies is that because they found ways to lower costs and in some cases provide a free service, they're doing good things for customers. On the food side, there's also a similar debate saying that, look, these companies, they're innovating. They're finding cheaper and cheaper ways to lower costs. They're making food that's healthy and fresh available to more consumers. Why should we not celebrate them? So it's not just a theme in one sector, it's showing up in multiple sectors. Gas, oil, and so on. I'll talk more about that now. But the question is, is a lower cost to consumers the right way to measure the total impact of value created by this company. So when I was a senior partner in strategy, I did a lot of work for governments involved in restructuring major telecoms companies, oil companies, and so on. And the central rule that followed through at that time was that if a merger led to a lowering of costs, it's good. That's being challenged today, but I wanna talk about why we need to rethink low costs because there's a trade-off. So I have a client in the executive coaching program now, and he's a senior person, very senior person, on a regulatory body whose job is to regulate companies that operate in a certain sector. So the way it works is that, let's assume there's 10 companies that his agency regulates. Those 10 companies are gonna spend money each year doing things to improve their services, maintenance, capital expenditures, and so on, maybe buying assets and so on. As a regulator, he needs to decide, okay, you're spending all this money. Which parts of these expenses are you going to be allowed to pass on to consumers in the form of higher costs? And what should those higher costs be? This is a way to make sure that companies don't spend too much and just pass it on to consumers. His job is to make sure they're spending the right amount of costs on the right things and not gorging customers. 
And he's very, very happy about this because the system they have, it's a system common around the world. They have an incentive model whereby they will tell these companies they're regulating, look, we want you to lower your costs, the cost base we regulate by 2%, for example, a year. Now, if you lower it by 2%, we want you to pass on 1% of that saving to consumers in the format of lower bills, but you can keep 1% for yourself in the format of a higher margin. So there's a lot of incentive for companies to keep lowering their cost base. And he was telling me what an amazing job they've done because over the last five years, all of the regulated entities that they are regulating have found a way to lower their cost spaces by more than 2%, sometimes by 3% a year. And it's been a godsend for them because, for one, the prices consumers are paying for whatever it is those regulated companies are selling has gone down. So consumers have more money in their pockets, especially during COVID. That's a big deal, right? But beyond prices falling for consumers, investors are looking at this and saying, hey, we're going to build a factory. We're going to build an R&D center. We're going to build an investment center because the utility costs are low and utility bills are quite high in certain sectors. I mean, if, if they found a way to lower the price of electricity to the point whereby they could bring in big data centers, that's a big deal. So the regular getting praise for this, he's pleased with himself and he's been talking to me about what should be the strategy for the regulator going forward. Now, I've been around many, many companies and many parts of the world advising governments and CEOs and so on. And one thing I know is that human nature is not so good. It takes the path of least resistance. So I asked him to relook at those numbers. Not that anyone's lying, but I'm pretty sure people are cutting costs. But what I mean by that is that if you tell someone to cut their costs and you reward them for cutting their costs, they're going to find ways to cut costs to be rewarded. And they're going to find any way to cut costs that they're allowed to cut costs on. So when you're running any infrastructure that's regulated, whether it's gas pipelines, energy infrastructure, water facilities, and so on. You have to be careful that you're not cutting costs that lead to problems down the line. For example, what if one of the costs you are cutting out is the fact that you're not insulating your gas line so that if there's a freak snowstorm, everything shuts down? What if you're not setting up your power lines in such a way that you are cleaning the vegetation around it so that it doesn't spark fire problems. Until you have that problem, you don't know you've created a problem. So what I asked him to do is ask all of your regulated utilities to give you a breakdown of what costs they're cutting. Then I want you to assign two or three of your analysts to see which of those costs that they've cut or that they've not undertaken at all is supposed to have been undertaken to manage some risk that you've identified as an important risk. And what do you think happened? Well, of course, they found that important investments that are needed to manage a critical risk has been cut. Now think of the problem he has here. What does he do? Does he go back and tell all of the utilities, first, we're going to find you, but he can't really find them because they never asked them to do it in the first place. It's, they've given them discretion. But now if you ask those utilities to make the investments, bulls are going to start going up. He's got to make the call how to phase in the investments that should have been made, but doing it in such a way that it doesn't cause a shock to the system. This is an example whereby just because costs have been cut, things shouldn't be celebrated. You know, another example of this is um, if you go to, uh, if you look at milk, for example, today. You know, previously when I was growing up and in some parts of the world even today, when you buy milk, before you open it, when you take it out from your fridge and you want to drink it, you have to shake it. 
because milk separates the cream rises to the top and the, the colloidal solution that we call milk sits at the bottom. But what's happened over time is companies have found a way to firstly sell us more milk. So milk containers have gotten bigger, but the price has gotten lower. But at the same time, you no longer shake milk. And the question now becomes is that, has the price of milk been lowered because these milk companies have achieved some enormous economies of scale and found some legitimate ways to cut costs? Or are they cutting out costs that are going to create problems later? Another example, you know, if you look at you know, these super-sized, if you go to theater today or 7-Eleven, you find these super-sized cola containers. They're cheaper than they were before, but they contain more cola. So here's a question. Is it cheaper because these companies have found some legitimate ways to cut costs or because they're putting in substandard content? It's a deep insight here. You need to offer consumers things at the right price. But if you're doing it by cutting out costs that are going to cause problems down the line, you're simply creating a trap for yourself. And this is very common. So whenever I see companies cutting costs, yeah, okay. For example, there's been an enormous proliferation, if you've, you know, uh, go on the internet, of companies that are selling clothing for the Instagram generation. I've seen companies that sell dresses for $5. Why that's showing up on my Wall Street Journal feed, I will never know, but it's there. You can now buy a cocktail dress for $15, $5 in some cases. And the world is abuzz with how these companies are doing good things by making clothing cheaply available. But here's the thing. What legitimate costs are being cut? Is there somewhere in the world someone working for so little money to make a $5 cocktail dress? What about the quality of the material being used? What about the quality of the treatment of the animals who may be supplying the content for some of those dresses? So the insight is understand when cost cutting is good and understand when cost cutting is bad. And understand the difference between cost-cutting that will get the attention of regulators and cost-cutting that may never get the attention of regulators but may create a problem for you because you end up hurting your customers. The other big thing we're seeing right now, it's um, early in the year, but even if it's not early in the year, because of COVID, companies are rethinking their strategies. It's universal. Every time you open up a major newspaper, a company has done a strategy review. A hedge fund has forced a company to do a strategy review. And largely thinking about how to operate in a world that's dramatically accelerated digitization, but also how to operate in a world with COVID impacting everything from travel to tourism. Now, typically when you do any corporate strategy work or business unit strategy work, you want to be in large, fast and growing markets. Very few people want to be in small markets that are not growing and not growing fast or profitable. You want to avoid those markets, right? I mean, Auto companies have announced they're going to be exiting markets because they're either not large, not profitable, or not growing fast. HSBC announced they're exiting the United States. The market's large, but it's not really growing for them. They've never been able to get growth in this market at a profitable level versus profits they could get in Asia. So you want to be in a large market that's profitable and growing fast, and you want to have some kind of advantage in that market so that you're not going to be displaced easily. Because if you don't have an advantage... But you're in a market that's very attractive. You're going to, other people are going to enter and eventually you're going to leave that market. So you exit the market versus investing billions of dollars in something that will be easily displaced. And that's the theme of most restructurings we see today. You don't have an advantage in a fast, profitable and growing market. 
and you just somehow can't get it going, you're going to exit that market. And usually that becomes an uh, option for local players to consolidate or even private equity deals. So I've been working with an executive coaching client who is um, very senior in a Japanese company. And they, I'm not going to go into the sector, what it is. It's a high-tech sector. They exited the sector about five years ago because they just couldn't keep up. Same thing. The, the sector was profitable. It was fastly, it was growing rapidly, and it was large. But what happened to them is that other players from other parts of Asia, Europe, and the United States, but primarily Europe and the United States, they found a way not to lower the cost, but to invest so much that their technology was superior to this Japanese company. So this Japanese company would have to spend billions and billions of dollars just to catch up and many more billions of dollars to exceed the Europeans and Americans. And they made the decision that, you know what, we're never going to be the best. It's going to take us billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars to get you, and it's not clear we can make the leap. And it's costing us a fortune to operate here and we're not the preferred supplier. So they exited. And they've done their corporate strategy review again. And they came to the conclusion that, yeah, we made the right decision. But I stopped him and I said, hold on a second here. You know, if you look at the uh, market entry strategy study that's available to insiders, I use a technique called considerations. These are things that you need to keep in mind that are unique to your situation. So if you just do a typical or best practice analysis without taking into consideration these considerations, you'd miss deep insights. So what I pointed out to him is that, just hold on one second here. You, your company has decided not to play in this space, right? But isn't it true that due to sanctions, these American and European companies can't sell to Chinese buyers who are the biggest buyers of this technology? And he said, that's true. So the criteria here is not just to be the best. You have to, another consideration is, can the Chinese buy your technology? So yes, you're not the best. There's no debate about that. But the question is, are you, because the Chinese can only buy your technology, is your technology good enough that the Chinese will buy it? And, you know, on a, if you do all the costs and calculations, is that worthwhile to you? And it turns out that it was worthwhile to them because when they called the Chinese companies and said, we want to bring this product, this technology package that we took offline four years ago, if we brought it online, can you give us a commitment? Would you buy it? And yeah, the Chinese are willing to place orders two years in it, two years worth of orders and prepay, and they're willing to pay more than the market value of those equipment because they wanted to lock in supply. And of course, the company did go ahead with this, restarted and so on, and they're back in business. Now, the trick for them is that they need to figure out a way to sustainably compete assuming the legislative barrier changes and American and European companies can sell to the Chinese. So they've got a two-year window. They've got to figure out a way to compete. But my point is this. When you're doing strategy, you know, everyone says strategy is easy to do. Strategy is easy to do if you don't really care about whether you're creating value or you're just going to be pleased with your PowerPoint slides. But in true strategy, and the deep insight is you've got to understand what's unique about your circumstances. And more importantly, maybe the sub-insight is that the next best alternative sometimes is the best alternative. Because in this situation, you know, the theme of this piece is know when to be the next best alternative. That Japanese company had always assumed being the next best alternative was not good enough. And in fact, most companies, if you're the next best alternative, 
you may consider exiting, selling to private equity and so on. But sometimes there's something unique. There's a consideration you've overlooked that makes you the viable and sometimes only choice when you are the next best alternative. So the next big topic is what I call tough adjustments for the digital age. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes of Monday Morning ATM, you know that I have an executive coaching client who's a very senior person in a media company. And I've been working with this person over several months to understand what the whole digitization theme means for their business. And you know, in a previous episode, I spoke about how we figured out that um, artists were complaining because they weren't getting enough money, but we've made them communicate to artists that the reason they're not getting enough money is because they need to manage their careers more as a business and not just as artists. But we've obviously had many more conversations. And I want to tell you another insight that I helped this executive see that changes the way they're looking at their business, but also allowing them to see new business models they can create. So we kept digging deeper over many discussions. And if you look at any song on Spotify or a CD, if you still have one of those things, you will see that when it comes to the credits, there's the name of the record label, the recording label, like Sony Music or there's many of them. And there's a name of the artists who either compose the lyrics, that's the words, or the melody, which is the sound. And you get two kinds of copyrights. You get a copyrights for the master recording, which is how all of those things are put together, which is usually held by the studio. And you get a copyright for the um, melody and the words. Usually the split of royalties. Royalties is the amount of money made from streaming that. 50% goes towards the uh, recording studio, which owns the copyright to the master recording. I think about 30 to 35% goes towards the distributor, which is a streaming company. And the rest, which is anywhere from 10 to 15%, goes towards the people who hold the copyright to the melodies and the words. Now, if you look, if you just pull up a Spotify feed or your CD and you look at maybe, maybe like hip hop, right? And you look at who wrote this hip hop song, whether it's the melody or the lyrics. There'll be a number of names. If it's hip hop, because hip hop likes to sample music from different places, there'll be a lot of people who contributed, okay? If it's pop music or rock music, usually there's fewer people who contributed, so you have fewer names. Now, here is the thing you have to ask yourself. Let's assume you see five names of people who contributed to the lyrics and the melody. Does the order in which the names appear dictate the amount that people get paid? Think about that. Forget about the order now. This is the second thing to think about. Does having your name included as a creator of either part of the lyrics or part of the melody mean you even did something at all? Maybe someone is just being friendly to you and said, you know what, you really inspired me, so as a courtesy to thank you, I'm going to put your name here. Now, the insight here is that this is a big insight. Is oftentimes when we do something, we do it because we understand today's business model of how we will make money. And we say, okay, we're going to do this, but because we make money in this way, it's not going to cost us anything. So for a very long time, when the way music labels were set up, you usually worked with a big recording label. And that recording label knew through the contract that was set up who had contributed what to the song. And that's how royalties were paid. So for example, if you've got seven people listed as the people who wrote the song, the contract in the background tells you how the split should take place. But what's now happening is that your music catalog can be resold in the future. 
It's a big business because streaming has made music catalogs that were prepared 40, 30, 70 years ago valuable again. But when people put together the names of who wrote what, they weren't thinking about whether they want to split royalties 30 years in the future. And now the debate is not whether the musician is being paid enough. The debate is whether the musician is getting the right percentage assuming they're being paid enough. So there's two debates here that I've got that executive to think about. One is that are they being paid the right amount, but are also being paid the right percentage? And there's a very big insight here. Think about things today and how contract ownership is set up for today's business model and how it could be impacting the future. I'll give you a classic example of this. Today, if you write an academic paper, you publish it for free. No one pays you to do that, right? I think there may be some companies experimenting with payments, but by and large, if you want to be published in any academic journal, you don't get paid for it. And in fact, when you write out the names of the authors, you put your name first, but beyond the names of who wrote what, it's not clear who made the biggest contribution. Now imagine if a company comes along and says, okay, we're going to start paying scientists for papers they publish. We're going to change the model. We understand that science is the core of the wealth of a nation. So we're going to find a way to pay them. And not only are we going to pay them, we're going to pay them from the catalog of past publications. Now, you can say that's never going to happen, but no one thought streaming would happen. It's all about how business models shift. Now, today, when scientists are writing out their papers, they're not thinking about how attributions dictate copyright ownership and percentage of effort. They're just putting in names. Because for today's business model, which is nothing is received from the author, they're not giving away anything. But it's inevitable that at some point, someone's gonna find a way to monetize this and we're gonna not gonna know who contributed what. So what's the insight here? The insight here is, there's many insights, but one very big insight is that when you are figuring out an ownership structure of anything, don't just figure out an ownership structure that gives you the biggest return for the current business model, you've got to figure out an ownership model that locks in the biggest return for you irrespective of the business model. Or at least you want the flexibility, but that's very rare. So there's many insights there, but we've been working with this executive to think through what this all means. And it's a very deep discussion. It's very interesting. And it's going to have enormous implications because most of the world is not yet digitized. And you make money in the digital world based on ownership. And ownership is very opaque in most places. So how, what does that mean for your business? What does it mean for ownership as business models change? Now, the final piece I want to talk about, and it's very, very close to my heart, is something I call mothering a strategy. So I want to talk about an executive coaching client who I've known for a very long time. And it's a very successful client in the sense that people who look up to this person think, wow, this is a successful person. But knowing this client and the discussions we have, they don't think they're successful. They think they've failed. And I I just want to point out that the majority of our executive coaching clients fit that model. People looking at them say they're successful, but these clients know. They don't just feel they're not successful. They know that given the work they've put in, their capabilities and the stamina and the sacrifices, they have not achieved what they're capable of achieving. And most clients who call us in are not calling us in when things go well. Of course, they're calling us in when there's a meltdown, when things are not going well. And previously, I would take in junior clients and I would take in senior clients. I would take in clients at consulting firms and so on at a junior level. And I'd also take in senior clients. But I've not been taken in junior clients because what they're usually trying to achieve is not as impactful and world-changing as senior clients. 
Not always, but majority. So I've tried to focus on senior clients. We can delineate this even further. Junior clients always want to learn the skills of a McKinsey or BCG partner to be able to do astonishing analysis. They want to dazzle with PowerPoint. Then I have senior clients who also say, okay, teach me how to be a dazzling McKinsey partner. I want to learn those skills. If a senior person comes to me, previously when a senior person came to me and said, I want to learn these insights and how to do this analysis, I would teach them, but I always made the assumption that they would know that the insights are not enough. But then what I found is that some senior clients were not getting the results that they should be getting. And then when I dug further, I realized that it's because they're assuming that just having the analytical skills are enough. Now when a senior client comes to me and says, I want to learn the analytic skills, I say no. What you want is you want to get results. If you're going to be happy learning the analytic skills, but you're not focusing on the results, then we have a problem. Now coming, I'm going to show you how this impacts the trajectory of your career based on the hat you're wearing and the viewpoint you have. So with this client, she has an opportunity to lead a business unit, business division, I think is a better word, at a very large financial institutions group. And when she joined the program on a referral, she was busy putting together the strategy for how she would run this unit, spending a lot of time doing a lot of analysis and she's used a lot of our material about focus interviews and so on. And she wanted me to help her put together the strategy that's gonna show her bosses that she's the right person to run this unit. But I've seen clients fall for this trap late and I asked her, look, hold on a second. Let's just think about what you're doing, right? Firstly, you saying that if you put together a brilliant strategy, you can convince people that you're smart and you should run this. She said, yes. Okay, so what does what has to be true for what you're saying to be true? For what you're saying to be true, clearly you're saying that executives, senior executives can distinguish between a good and a bad strategy. Because if they can't distinguish between a good and a bad strategy, then it doesn't matter what you show them because they don't know if it's good or bad. And when I mean bad strategy, I don't mean a strategy that's wrong with errors. I mean a strategy that's not going to work, but all the calculations are right. It's just the interpretation of the data that's off. And she said, yeah, obviously. You know, when someone tells you obviously, it's usually not obvious. Okay, so I said, okay, I need to show her this is not true. So I, I asked her to do this. You've, you know, we went to a very good MBA program. You worked at a very elite, you've worked at several elite organizations. Tell me a, a strategy that you know that was a disaster that you read about in your MBA program and so And she said, yeah, okay. This is a strategy that I know was a terrible strategy. And I don't know why the company did it. I said, okay, that's a good company. I want you to go to their website and I want you to pick out the annual report from the year that strategy was endorsed. And she said, no, I don't want to do this. And I said, yeah, go do it, look it up. And I said, okay, download the annual report. Now I want you to go flip to the executive directors and board members of that company. Now look at these people. These are very talented people. These are not average people. These are uh, titans of industry, very smart people. At least three of them were ex-consulting partners. Others sat on the boards of Fortune 100 companies. Now, I asked her a question. You just told me that it's obvious that this strategy that this company implemented in this year was obviously wrong. If it was obviously wrong, how did this who's who gallery of boards of directors sign off on this? It's easy to knock a company and say the company didn't know, but if you bring down the decision-making to the level of the people who make the decision, it's much harder to make a claim like that. So I asked you a question, if these people who are clearly amazing executives, and they are amazing executives, cannot distinguish between what's a good and a bad strategy, 
Why do you assume that your bosses are going to be able to look at your strategy and think you're the best thing since sliced bread? The, the answer is simple. When you look at strategies, it's very hard to know what's a good strategy and what's a bad strategy. They look often exactly the same. It's just some differences in assumptions and judgment in terms of how we interpret data. So the point I wanted to make to you is this. If it's hard to know what's a good strategy, how are they going to know you are worthwhile by looking at your strategy? And then I think a bulb went off. And then I told her, this is what you need to think about. When you're young, when you're just starting off your career, nobody knows you. You have no track record. Nobody can assess you. When you do brilliant analysis, it helps your career. So when you're very young, analytical brilliance, great analysis is an armor that protects your career and allows you to move forward. So when you're being attacked, you put up your armor, you deflect the criticism, and you move your career forward. When you're a senior person, like she is, you are going to be measured on your track record, not your strategy you have planned. It's a very important thing to distinguish. You will be measured on the strategy implement and how it does, but before you get measured on the strategy and how it does, you first have to be given the opportunity to implement your strategy. At a junior level, analytical brilliance is, is armor. At a senior level, your strategy and analytical brilliance is a baby. You have to protect it and nurture it. So when the executive team at this bank is going to be looking at you, they're not going to say, oh my God, this lady is so brilliant. She came with such a brilliant strategy. No, they don't know how to do that. What they are going to say is that this lady has an incredible track record of getting things done. She knows how to work with difficult people. She knows how to bring them on board. She knows how to be resourceful and push through. So let's hire her because she can protect the strategy and implement it and make sure it works. At a senior level, Strategy does not connote brilliance on you. At a senior level, your reputation gives your management team confidence that you know what you are doing. Once she made this mindset, mindset shift and started building relationships with the senior people and understanding what they thought about her, that's how she managed to get the job. And the other thing I told is don't spend eight weeks developing your strategy. I'll show you how to develop a strategy in two days. That's the way a strategy partner would do it. We develop our thinking in two days and then we give it to our engagement teams to test over eight weeks. And if you're an insider, you can see that in the corporate strategy and transformation program where I developed the thinking in two days to show you how to restructure something. But this is very important. When you're at a senior level, your analytical brilliance means nothing because it's very hard to know what is analytically brilliant. Your track record and your capability and your truthfulness and your trustworthiness is what matters. At a senior level, your job is to take a strategy you have and have the skills to protect it. Because if people look at your strategy, they don't fall into line and say, that's the best strategy I saw. I'm going to support you. No, they firstly don't even know what's a good strategy, but they look at you and say, I'm going to support you. So at a senior level, don't learn the skills of how to do strategy analysis and think that's enough. You need to learn the skills to do strategy analysis like a partner. But your job is to protect your strategy and not rely on it to save your career. If you follow that path, you will not get what you're looking for. Maybe you will get it, but it's not the best path to go down. As always, I look forward to seeing you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.